morning. Um, what a beautiful day outside. <laughs> if you were here earlier, when, when the sky felt it was much closer and much more surrounding us, it really felt like God's creation was hugging us this morning. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, and it still is, and we give thanks for that. We give thanks for that. And, and I hope in some way, in spite of the wet and the gray, that, um, that you encounter God today. That you encounter God today. Um, Jesus comes to us proclaiming his kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near. Wake up to that reality. Change your way of thinking. Open your eyes and believe the good news that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. He brings it into the world and it is still here. And we as his followers, we as those, those who call ourselves Christians or seekers after God, we are part of this kingdom that he planted. It is here. Wake up and see that reality that he has brought this in. Now, of course, we say things like, you know, we are saved by the grace of God through our faith in that, that God has done for us. Right? We believe that salvation comes through faith and faith alone. But you know, as members of that kingdom of God, there are kingdom ethics. Our behavior does in fact matter to God and to that kingdom. Okay, So hear me correctly. Right, I am saying, as we say, we are saved through our faith, but our behavior does matter, and it matters an awful lot. It matters an awful lot. We see that in our readings today, that Jesus and Paul are talking about what proper kingdom ethics are. So that strange reading from Corinthians about whether you can eat barbecue or you have to be a vegetarian, what was all that about? What was all that about? Well, I remember this story. It's, about, it's a story about um, a small child who lived in a very impoverished neighborhood, and, and one day, a very wealthy person with a very shiny, expensive sports car came to the neighborhood. It was an amazing vehicle. And the child had seen these on TV, but had never seen one in person. was just, just amazed that this, this car was coming down the street in this impoverished neighborhood, and was really surprised when the car stopped. So, of course, he wants to see this thing up close, and the man driving the car sees the child coming, and he starts thinking about, this is a bad neighborhood. This child probably has not been around nice things before. I've got to protect my car. So he's thinking about how he's going to keep the child away from his car, even from, like, you know, getting peanut butter fingers on it or, you know, climbing on it, scratching it or something like this, protecting that car. And, and so the child is approaching. He starts thinking about what he's going to say, and, and the child goes, gee, mister, where'd you get this car? Where'd you get this car? And the first thing the man says to him is, you stay away from this car. 
And where I got this car is none of your business. Enthusiastic child still just kind of looking at the car. And then the man says, well, not that it's any of your business, but my brother gave me this car. <coughs> my brother gave me this car. And then he adds to that, to that, to that poor child, I bet you wish you had a brother who would give you things. And the child said, no, I want to be that brother. I want to be that brother. See, the difference there is that God was thinking about what somebody had done for him. And that child, on the other hand, is not thinking about his own good. What he's wishing that he could be was somebody who could do things for other people. That is a kingdom ethic. That is the attitude of someone who knows that they are a child of God. And that they are blessed by everything that their Heavenly Father has is theirs. They already know that. What they do is they live their lives serving other people, hoping to bring joy and happiness to others. See, this thing that uh, Paul was dealing with, the, the community at, in, at Corinth, this, this Corinthian community, they've apparently sent him a prior letter. Because it starts off with, now considering these things, right? So he's, he's responding to a letter. Because apparently they said something to him, they sent him a letter saying, hey, you know, Paul, we're pretty smart too. We know a thing or two. We're not uneducated. Yeah, Paul, you're smart, but you know what? We're Corinthians. We're not from the backwoods. We're educated. We know a thing. Sounds like Episcopalians, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Highly educated bunch. We know a thing. So they wrote him and they're saying, you know, Paul, we, we, we know about these things. And you know one thing we know? We know there's no such thing as idols. There's no such thing as idols. Pagans believe in those, but you know, we, we know that there's the one God. There's only one God. We know that. And so when pagans would take a meat offering into a pagan temple and, and offer it to a God, of course the God, the pagan God's not going to eat it. What do you do after that? You take it to the market and sell it. But now you have food that's been offered, sacrificed to an idol, and people with scruples and people with scruples would look at that and go, you cannot eat that meat because it's been offered to idols. That's what the scrupulous people would think. Now these enlightened Corinthians though, oh, we know a thing or two. We know there are no such thing as idols. And if somebody offered this meat to an idol, it's still good to eat. It might actually be reduced cost because it's been secondhand meat. And they say it does us no harm to eat this. But yet apparently in that community, there were people with other views of things. And this was offensive to them. This was scandalous to them. For their fellow church members to do these things. Scandalous. Now Paul agrees with those who claim to have knowledge. Right? He also says, yes, we all recognize there's the one God, there are no idols. Yes, this meat is in fact fine, but you know what? You're scandalizing your brothers and sisters by doing that. 
but don't do it. Don't do it. Yes, you have knowledge, but your knowledge has puffed you up. It's making you think you're better than, you're smarter than, and if only those people would be enlightened like you are, they would see things your way. Does that sound very contemporary? If only they would see things my way. If only they were as smart as I am. And if they're going to remain in their unenlightened state, and they take offense at the things I do, that's not my problem, is it? And Paul says, yes, it is. Paul says, yes, it is. To act as a member of God's kingdom is to think not just about your own good, but to think about the well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ. To act in true love and charity means to think about the well-being of another person and not be selfish and individualist and think about this is mine, that is yours, and what I do is none of your business and what you do is none of my business. But to see ourselves as one body. <clears throat> and Paul's encouragement to those who think they know is to remind them, well, you know some, but you don't know it all. Because you miss this very important point that your behavior is scandalizing a brother or sister. And so watch what you do. Watch what you do. Now, we as Episcopalians are fine with things like dancing. <laughs> Turner will now demonstrate. <laughs> Sometimes it means that you sacrifice your own freedoms 
and your own right to do things for the well-being of another person. That sounds very godlike because that's what Jesus did for us. Now, the story from, from Mark emphasizes this point. It emphasizes this point. This is a very holy setting that Jesus is teaching in, and what he does, I think, is the real lesson that he wants us to see. He is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, a holy place and a holy time, a place that is set apart, a time that's set apart to do something that is fundamentally an act of love for another person. So the story tells us that he goes into the synagogue and he's teaching and a man with a demon shrieks at him. You ever had that happen? Somebody shrieking at you? Perhaps for most of us, the first response is not to try to embrace that person and love on them. Right? We want to shriek back or give them the Hawaii hello sign or whatever it is. I think some of you know what that is. But Jesus shows this profound, surprising love in this moment. The most unusual character, perhaps. See, when the demon recognizes Jesus, the demon thinks that this is going to be a violent confrontation. Have you come to destroy us? And even when, when the demon is leaving the, the man's body, right, there's this kind of violent shrieking. I mean, the, the, the Greek word for that has the sense of rending the person apart, tearing that man apart as it came out, doing violence on the way out. But what does Jesus do? He simply says to that demon, When you look at that and you go, well, how do we normally think you're supposed to deal with demons? Let's get the person in the center room and kind of you know, like dance around them and chant and do some incantations. And, you know, if the child has a demon in them, what are we supposed to do? Beat the devil out of them? We have these very violent kind of things that we, that we kind of think of that, you know, to, to rid something of something evil that you have to kind of beat the devil out of it. Jesus doesn't hit a person. Jesus basically says to that demon, you need a time out. <laughs> you need a time out. Shh. Settle down. Settle down. <clears throat> Jesus is showing love to an evil spirit. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Where do you think Paul gets this idea that we're supposed to love each other? Well, if Jesus loves a demon, maybe we can do our part in trying to love each other? <coughs> maybe we can do that. You know, um, the Episcopal Church, uh, Father George was talking about um, an experience of somebody uh, approaching him and asking if he could do an exorcism for him. <laughs> um, the Episcopal Church, like some of the more Catholic traditions, we do, we do exorcisms. Um, we have a book that supplements the prayer book called the Book of Occasional Services. And if you look up exorcism in there, because there's a section on exorcism, 
is under our pastoral services. <laughs> Here's our pastoral care director. <laughs> Come see our exorcist. Yeah, this book of occasional services, if you turn to the page where it's for, for exorcism, it says call the bishop. <laughs> it does. It says call the bishop. And I, and I think I know why. So this is the story of, of an attempted exorcism from the book of Acts. Um, Paul had been going around um, healing people. And so I'm picking up in the 19th chapter. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that when the handkerchief or aprons that he had that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out. That's pretty good. Okay, um, those are called second-class relics. <laughs> <laughs> Turner's got a sweatband that I covet. <laughs> second-class relic, my friend. And it continues on. Then some itinerant exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> That's great, who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, beat them up, <laughs> and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Do not try this at home. <laughs> Call the bishop. Do not try this at home. Call the bishop. That'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but we have our part to play as, as members of the kingdom of God, the household of God, to love each other the way even Jesus loves. Perhaps we can't cast out demons. That's not our business doing that. Call the bishop. But we are called to yield our freedoms for the well-being, for the spiritual health of others around us. There's something important about doing that when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near because doing that is something that brings the kingdom of God into our presence. It's the story of a blacksmith. I'll close with this. Story of a blacksmith. An angel appeared to the blacksmith. And the blacksmith kind of was expecting this, you know, this is the way things go and it's the end of life and angels come to take you home and, and um, an angel appeared to the blacksmith and the, the blacksmith said, um, yes, I, I know why you're here. And the angel said, I am here to bring you to your abode in the kingdom of God. The blacksmith, um, you know, was not rejecting that, but, but pointed out to the angel that, you know, we're, we're almost going into planting season. And I live in this farming community, and I am the only blacksmith here, and, you know, for, for the well-being of all these people in the community, they need somebody to tend to their plowshares, they need somebody to shot their horses, they need somebody to, to, to serve them. And if I'm not here, these people will be in, in bad shape. Their life will not be well. If I stay here, I can help them out. Well, could, could, you, could you maybe delay this? Can you come back later? And so the angel said, sure, I will, I will come back later. So sometime later, after the growing season, the angel appears again to the 
blacksmith and, and, and says, I'm, I'm here to, to take you to your abode in the kingdom of God. The blacksmith um, standing next to the, the angel kind of gestures over to the field across from his where, where there's one of his, his friends. His, his field has not been harvested. And says, oh, my, my, my friend across there um, has been very ill. And if somebody, me, doesn't go over and bring his crop in, he'll make no money, he'll be financially ruined, he'll lose his farm, his family will starve. So um, if, it's, if it's not too much to ask, could you come back later? <laughs> and so the angel came back a third time. This time he said to the angel, you know, my, my, my friend on the other side has, has lost his wife. And he's alone. And he's grieving. And I am his best friend. And I would like to stay, if it's okay with you, and, and help him through this grief and, and, and get his life started again. Um, could, could you come back later? And so this went on five, six, seven months. Every time the angel would come back, the blacksmith would meet him and would kind of look out upon the world and its sufferings. <clears throat> And would kind of, you know, raise his hands and, and point to something. And, and there, were, there was always something that was wrong in the world. And he would ask that angel, can, can you delay this? Because I, I need to help with whatever it was. So eventually the, the, the blacksmith found himself as a very aged person. Family had all died off. Could no longer do the work he was doing. But it helped so many people along the way. And so he um, just was talking with, with God and said, okay, God, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go now. And instantaneously as he's saying that, the angel appears. The one who has been inviting him to come to his place in the kingdom of God. So he says to the angel, okay, I'm ready for you to take me to my abode in the kingdom of God. And the angel looked at him and said, My child, where do you think you've been all these years? 